Good morning. Good morning. You all right? Everybody take a deep breath. You've made it to Revelation 19. Well, hey, if you, if you are just checking out Citadel Square, uh, let me tell you, you picked the absolute best place to come and to listen to what happens at a church. Because we are in uh, the best four chapters, perhaps, of your entire Bible. Uh, and that is Revelation chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be good for you to grab one. Uh, there should be one in the pew rack around you somewhere. Turn to Revelation chapter 19, all the way to the right, the very last book of your Bible. Revelation 19, I'll turn there as well. As we get started, uh, let me tell you how the book of Revelation uh, lays out. Uh, we began in the book of Revelation looking at uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ and uh, these letters to the churches which characterized um, kind of seven different uh, seasons and struggles that happen in the life of the church. And uh, we worked all the way through those. And then in your Bible, you get to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, and they're visions of heaven. And uh, this is going to be the final vision of heaven in the book of Revelation. They're, they're punctuated throughout this book in such a way that you understand uh, heaven's perspective on things. Have you noticed that? That consistently, as you see things happening on earth, you have these moments in this book where heaven is opened and heaven speaks as to what is going on. Heaven has a response to things that are happening on earth. So the very first ones were in Revelation chapter 4, where we had this throne room scene where we saw God seated on his throne and around him the four living creatures and the elders, the raptured church, and all of this glorious, beautiful worship service began this book. Revelation chapter 5 is about the lamb. If you remember that, the worthiness of the lamb. Worthy are you to take the seals and to open them because by your blood you ransomed men uh, from, from earth. So you have the... the Trinity itself around the throne. You have the Lamb and his preeminence in Revelation chapter 5. And then as you move in chapter 6 through 18, which has really been this major central section of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Christ, the seven letters to the churches, the throne room scene, and then 6 through 18 has been the, the undoing of creation, the undoing of evil. And all the way through this book, you've had heaven give a perspective and a statement on God's judgments that began in the seven seal judgments, that continued in the seven trumpet judgments, and then in Revelation chapter 15, I'm sorry, 16, we saw the bowl judgments. So as you move through this book, heaven speaks, and heaven has something to say. As you look at heaven in, in Revelation chapter 6, you have these souls who are under the altar who are praying and crying out to God, God, how long until you will avenge our blood on the earth? In Revelation chapter 7, you have this great multitude that have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb as they enter into heaven. And John says, who are these people? People from every tribe and nation and tongue who are holding palm branches and praising God. And heaven speaks to explain that these are the ones who've washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. They are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. Then as you go into the judgment uh, the judgments that move on from Revelation chapter uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 is the seventh trumpet. At the seventh trumpet, the announcement of heaven says, uh, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that heaven explodes in joy that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. 
that he is about to come and to rule and to reign. Then you move into 15, the song of Moses that we looked at uh, that that tells you this kind of pre-wrath worship service. And then you move into Revelation chapter 16 where you have the explanation of these bowl judgments that come from this this, uh, angel who is the angel over the waters saying true and just are your judgments. Well, this is your final worship scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 19. And if you learn nothing else from the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is meant for believers in Jesus Christ to have their hearts explode in worship. It's meant to fundamentally reorient the kind of perspective you have on life. And that's why Revelation is so important because all the way through the book of Revelation, we're introduced to major ideas about God, his justice, his character, what he thinks about sin and deception and idolatry and demons and his wrath. And all of that is bound up in the book of Revelation. And it's almost painfully slow if you've been with us since 93 when we started the book of Revelation. 6 through 18 is meticulous as it explains to you the wrath of God, as it shows you the unveiling of what really is happening in a culture that is an atheistic culture and refuses to love God, to serve God, to obey the command to believe the gospel, to reject Christ and uh, reject God and to persecute his people. And God unveils all of that for you so that you would be able to see your Tuesday rightly according to the major themes that show up throughout your Bible and are resolved here in the book of Revelation. So these worship sessions are not arbitrarily placed throughout the book. You read the book of Revelation and you're halted by these worship moments where everything has to stop and everything has to acknowledge God and everything has to to, uh, take joy in the fact of what the Lamb has done for his people and what God is doing to break the power of Satan and his demons. And that was what we looked at last week. Last week we looked at Revelation 17 and 18 closed this judgment portion of the Bible that explained to you exactly who was judged. You had the image of the prostitute riding a beast in Revelation 17. You had the destruction of the final world kingdom set up against God, his Christ, and his people that gives you the best the world has to offer. And Revelation 18 closes with a funeral song where everybody in every corner of the earth, both small and great, weep and mourn over the fact of the things that they put their hope in on this world, in this earth, have ultimately failed them. Now that is contrasted with Revelation chapter 19. And Revelation chapter 19 is very easy. I'll I'll break it down for you. There's There's a worship moment, another one, and then there's a wedding. And this chapter follows the judgment upon Babylon and the harlot, intentionally so. Because what was mourned in Revelation 17 and 18, and we said last week that it was a funeral song for all the wrong reasons. We're mourning because we've lost what this world has promised me. And it's going to be contrasted with the worship of heaven here in Revelation chapter 19. And this chapter, guys, this chapter is so important for you. This chapter is so important for me because heaven is going to explode in worship 
over God and what he has done. And it, and it contrasts this previous song because it's worship for the right reason. It's joy for the right reason. It's not mourning for the wrong reason. It's joy and exaltation and worship because God has been faithful to his word. So let's, let's jump in here and, and uh, get after it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, your, the Psalms say that the unfolding of your word gives light. So we pray for these few minutes that we gather that uh, wherever we are in our heart and mind as we come to this place and we take a look at your word, that you would reorient us, that the truth of this passage would cause us to leave with greater confidence in your word, greater love of Christ, greater joy in the deepest parts of who we are. So, Father, would you change us here this morning? Would we be a people who are characterized by great faith in the truth of God that's revealed here in your word? Would you bless us and encourage us? We come and we bring our disappointments and our discouragements, the places where we are deceived, and I pray that you would blow those all away like chaff in light of the glory of who you are in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, Revelation 19. You see how that starts in your Bible? Rejoicing in heaven. Funeral last week, wedding this week. Sad songs last week, happy songs this week. So let's take a look here. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, now that's, that's important as we start here because all of what has just happened in 17 and 18 is instructive as to why you see heaven have a different perspective and a different response to the mourning that characterized Revelation chapter 18. So after the, the songs and the weeping and the, and the um, regret and the failure and, and those, those, uh, those individuals, those kings and those merchants and those seafarers all are weeping. And as those songs fade into the background as chapter 18 closes, chapter 19 opens like this. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, commentators are, are this, it doesn't explain to you who this great multitude is. But the phrase great multitude has been used before in the book of Revelation. Keep your finger in 19 and go back to 7 real quick. And let me show you this. This is where I land. I think that what begins this worship service are the people who have experienced the tribulation period the people who have given their lives in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, who've washed their garments in the, uh, the blood of the Lamb. Look at Revelation 7 real quick with me. Look at verse 9. After this I looked and behold, what? A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And now I, wa I want you to, sh to see what happens here. It's almost an identical uh, reproduction of what happens in 19. Look at how they start the song. These individuals who are coming out of the great tribulation start the worship service. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever Amen. 
Then the angel interprets who this group is in these next verses. One of the elders said, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Okay, come back to 19 with me. After this, John says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, what? Hallelujah. Now, that, if you're not a churchgoer or you don't really have a spiritual background, that may be a word to you that you've heard kind of used sarcastically. You know, that I got in a car wreck and somebody responds with, well, hallelujah, great, God's blessing your life incredibly well, wonderful. Right, that if you grew up in the church, it may be a church that uh, you know, we've used and we've sung in worship songs before. But I wanna show you something about this word that is really important because in the New Testament, this word doesn't occur until right here. It's not a common New Testament word until something very, very important has happened in your Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, it's a common word. It's used uh, quite a bit. There's a group of psalms in kind of like 104 to 109, 111 to 118, and then like 146 to 150 that are characterized by this word. In the Old Testament, it's, uh, it's a word that will typically be translated, praise the Lord. Hallel means to praise. Yahweh is the second half of it, and they put them together. And in the uh, New Testament, it's a word that is just taken directly from the Hebrew into the Greek into, the Greeks don't even translate it. They just take that idea and they bring it into the New Testament vernacular. But again, it doesn't show up until right here. It's six times in this passage. It's the first time in the New Testament it's mentioned right here with these individuals who are stepping out of the great tribulation and into heaven's throne room. And they're saying, hallelujah. Now, Steve, why does this matter? Why are you telling me this? Because in the Old Testament, praise the Lord and the Hallel Psalms are the Psalms of God's deliverance typically connected to his, his, God's rescue of his people from Egypt. Now, if you know the story of the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel is in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And they come out with a very significant Old Testament event. What is it? They come out in the Exodus, in, in the book of Exodus, cryptically termed, uh, they come out with God's plagues. Then they come to the Red Sea and they're rescued by God taking creation and judging the wicked. And all of that has been consistent through the book of Revelation. Let me show you where this begins. Turn back in your Bible to the Psalms. Here's the first time it shows up in the Old Testament. Psalms 104, that kind of begins this section of the Hallel Psalms. Look at Psalm 104, starting in verse 31. Psalm 104, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And here's the first time hallelujah shows up. Look at this verse. 
Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Now, why is hallelujah here in the book of Revelation? Come back to Revelation 19 with me. It's because the the greater Egypt, the city of Babylon, the seat of Antichrist's empire, has been destroyed. That the wicked on the earth have now been judged. And what was characterized in Revelation 17 and 18 by weeping and mourning and torment and crying and regret and failure in heaven is met with a different testimony. That heaven itself explodes in worship with hallelujah, fulfilling the fact that the great and ultimate final Pharaoh has been destroyed. The great and ultimate final Egypt has been destroyed. That God's judgment has now fallen on the wicked. And the wicked are now being cleansed from the earth as Jesus Christ returns to make all things new. And heaven goes, hallelujah. He's done it. And then it goes on. To say this, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. There's no verb in the Greek in this, in this string of words here. It's as if the, the angelic or the, the individuals who are coming out of the tribulation just attribute three major ideas to God. Salvation, glory, power be to our God. That this is the, not the redemption moment in the gospel. This is the fulfillment moment of all of what salvation means is resulting in the fact that Jesus is returning and he will make all things right. That he has cleansed the earth of the wicked and now he's about to return and fulfill all of his salvation promises that he began at the cross. Number two, glory. That there has been a glory war through this book, hasn't there? That God says through Isaiah that my glory I will not give to another. What has the Antichrist done in the book of Revelation? He set himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God and demanded everybody worship him. And God says, no more. Ultimate salvation through God's plans being fulfilled and what Jesus is done. The glory war that has happened at the heart of the Babylonian Empire, demanding that everyone worship the Antichrist is over, and finally God's power has been imminently displayed in the plagues. Wouldn't you agree? That he has struck the earth in a variety of ways, demonstrating with a hundred pound hailstones and turning water to blood and making water bitter and the stars falling and people having boils, that he is unstoppable in his power. And these individuals who step out of their lives characterized by persecution and martyrdom step into heaven and watch the destruction of evil and begin the worship service saying, hallelujah. Look at verse two, it goes on to explain it. For his judgments are true and just. You know, uh, the Psalms say that... um, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne in speaking of God. And, and we've, we've mentioned this throughout the book, especially when it comes to those who give their lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ, that as they step into heaven and they are the victims of the persecution of the Antichrist and his, uh, his evil minions, 
that now on the other side, everybody agrees that what God does is one, true. Now, truth has to do with its accordance with reality. God is never deceived by evil. He never misses something, right? There's not some lie that God forgets to judge and gets to the end of time and go, oh man, I got most of this stuff right and that's about a pretty close judgment. His judgments are altogether true, which means they're completely in accordance with reality, the true nature of things. That's why Revelation has been so instructive for us because Revelation takes the covers back and shows you, oh, there's a prostitute sitting upon a beast and this is how God views uh, immorality. This is how God views idolatry. There are these vivid images so that you would really understand how God sees things. You would really understand how God sees an atheistic, corrupted world political power that has no morality whatsoever, as God calls it, a beast. So his judgments are true. Not only that, his judgments are just. That it's the absolute right response to sin on earth. And we, we saw that in, in Revelation 17 and 18 that you go, gosh, God, God, this is important because we don't understand God as just kind of finally having enough and flying off the handle and obliterating the earth. That his judgments, his verdicts are absolutely right and in accordance with the sins that have been committed against him and his people. True and just are your judgments. For he has judged the great prostitute, that's all of 17 and 18, who corrupted the earth with her immorality. What was she doing? That her intent on the planet was to pervert and to corrupt everything on the planet. To leverage the political power and religious influence and the, the spiritual forces of darkness. To leverage and corrupt any and all world system. That all of them would finally serve the ultimate ends of the Antichrist. And now God has judged the one who's corrupted the earth with her immorality. And finally he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is an element of God's justice that you and I have been waiting for since Revelation chapter 6. Do you remember Revelation chapter 6 where they're, they're the ones who have been beheaded for their testimony and they're beneath the altar and the altar of incense was the place of worship where prayers rise into God's presence and it was characterized by smoke and incense and as the smoke rises to God, now what you're going to see in this passage is now the smoke becomes an element of judgment it becomes the premier mark of God obliterating the world that is set up against him. So in Revelation 6, these martyrs, those who have been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus Christ, cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now heaven rejoices because God has avenged their blood on the earth. He's responded rightly and righteously and truthfully to his people being martyred, to his people being persecuted and on the run and afflicted by Satan and his demons. So that element of justice has been poured out in response to his people. But look at verse three. Once more they cry out, hallelujah. And now they turn from God's vengeance for his people and they now look at the object of God's wrath in verse three. And they say that the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The prayers of the saints, the incense that rises before God, that demands that God would judge and respond to his people being martyred and, and desire that God's vengeance would be poured out is met here. And now what you have, this forever and ever idea, is the same thing we looked at in Revelation chapter 14. 
I'll read it to you again if you can turn there if you want. Go back to 14, verse 9. Fourteen verse nine says this: and another angel, a third, followed the first two, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast." and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. That the smoke of the torment of Babylon is just beginning, as Babylon is destroyed and broken into three, and the false prophets, the demons, are sent out to gather the kings of the earth for the final battle of Armageddon that we looked at last week, that all the way through this book in Revelation 6 through 18, there has been constant preaching of the gospels by the two witnesses, by the, the uh, martyrs on earth, by angels in heaven, and that God has been infinitely patient in waiting for those to respond to the command to repent and give God glory. And now the eternal torment as Babylon is destroyed is just beginning and heaven explodes in response to say, hallelujah, wickedness has been judged. Now, as these individuals begin the worship service, I think this is, this is where I land on this. Again, this multitude is not described or defined, but I think it's the individuals now that come out of the worst time in human history to be a Christian. And that as God has gathered his people through persecution or through martyrdom and they step into heaven and they receive the white robe and they wave palm branches and they say that my faith has been vindicated. Wickedness has been judged. God has not forgotten. He's poured out his wrath upon the earth. Now these individuals are the first ones to start this song. And I think that's important just for us to understand that there are people in this room who have gone through things and on the other side have turned their, their weakness and their difficulties and their hardships into worship and praise of God. But a lot of times we come to our Christian life and we think that our Christian life is fundamentally a pragmatic thing. But then sooner or later we go through circumstances or wickedness on this earth or difficulties in uh, relationships or failures and, and deep hurts in our life and that What's interesting to me is on the other side, those who have gone through the hardest time in their time on earth step into heaven and they sing. They give God glory. Now, I'm gonna come back to that little nugget of an idea during the end of our time, but I want that to be in the back of your head as you think about what you're about to see. It's as if the weakest who were on earth, the most persecuted and went through the biggest difficulties are the ones who who choose the key that we're going to sing in. Look at verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures. These are individuals who have been around the throne throughout the entire book of Revelation. They're back in Revelation chapter 4, and here they are again in the worship service of Revelation chapter 19. And now they respond. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying what? Amen. Now, that's another kind of important Christian word. Amen means so be it. 
it is true. It, it characterizes some of Jesus' most important statements when he says, uh, if you have one of the older Bibles, the, the verily, verily, I say unto you. If you have a Bible like that, it's amen, amen. This is something of incredible importance. This is something of absolute truth and veracity. This is something that we are going to respond to with our amen to those who have been through the difficulty of the tribulation years. And we're going to say amen and hallelujah. Our hallelujah echoes the ones of those who have begun this song. Verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants. So these individuals who step out of the tribulation period begin to sing and the, and the elders begin to sing and the four living creatures begin to sing and now a voice from the throne itself says, all you his servants, all of those Old Testament saints who have put their faith in God and what he will do through the Christ, all of those of the raptured church who now stand in heaven righteous and clean, all of those angels who are around the throne, the hundreds of millions of angels, and now those New Testament tribulation saints, we'll call them, who have experienced martyrdom and persecution and for their holding to the truth of God in a difficult day. And heaven itself, the throne itself, responds and said, praise our God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, small and great. You know what small and great has to do? Small and great uh, characterize the marking of the beast, that the beast made everyone take this mark on the hand or on the forehead, small or great, no matter who they are, no matter what station in society they were in, that they would be allowed to buy and sell if they took this mark. And now those who are in heaven who are looking back on their time on earth, and it doesn't matter whether or not you take the bus or you own a jet, whether you've got a million in the bank or you're fed hand to mouth, no matter what season of life that you had during your time on earth, those earthly distinctions begin to melt away in light of being called a servant of God and joining with the hymn and the song of heaven. That was one of my favorite, um, crown him with many crowns. It says, we'll join the everlasting song." And now the voice from throne says, says, praise God. Then, now, all of what we're looking at here in one through five is looking back. Do you see that? It's all of this response to what has happened in Revelation 16, 17, and 18, the bold judgments pouring out and watching God's judgments, God's character, and uh, God's people be vindicated for their faith and God be vindicated for his judgments and truth. But now, the hallelujahs change. It's a different hallelujah reason that shows up in verses six through 10. That's worship is one through five, six through 10 is going to be the party. Look at verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. Jesus is described as having a voice like a roar with many waters. So are the individuals in Revelation 14 who stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion, and they sing a new song that no one else can learn except those who've been redeemed from all the earth. And their song, accompanied with harps, is also like the roar of many waters. So that you have, uh, in Revelation 14, you have the sealed, the 12,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel, and here they show up again. 
as both Old Testament and New Testament saints join into the final and great wedding song. Voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. What do they cry out? Hallelujah. You better get used to saying it. You're going to say it a lot when you get there. What do they say? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, I mentioned the Hallel Psalms in 104 to 109, about 11, 111 to 118. The next group of Psalms that have to do with the Hallel Psalms are in 146 to 150. If you read 146 to 150, you'll see praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, all over the place. And those Psalms don't have to do with the redemption that happened in Egypt. Those Psalms have to do with the reigning of God as the great king. So now the hallelujahs explode from heaven recognizing God's right and rule as being valid in heaven itself. The Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Now, the Almighty is about nine times throughout the book of Revelation. Outside of the book of Revelation, it's kind of like this word hallelujah. It only shows up in one place in the New Testament. The Almighty first, that term for God first shows up in Abraham's life. God introduces himself to Abraham as Lord God the Almighty. God of, it's uh, El Shaddai, if you've heard that term, an even more obscure Christianese term. Uh, If you've heard that term before, it means God of the mighty mountain. And God shows up to demonstrate and to tell, kind of explain who he is to Abraham in the midst of Abraham having, having no offspring whatsoever. And it's if God, in his might and in his power, introduces him to to somebody who can't have a kid in his absolute inability and weakness. So that Abraham would have trust that it's God alone who can bring about the purposes of God in my life. That's the whole idea of God the Almighty. But in the New Testament, it only shows up in one place in Paul's writings. And it's a a quote that Paul uses in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me show this to you. Flip there now. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Flip back to your left. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And Paul quotes this like from Isaiah, from Leviticus, and he he smashes all of these Old Testament ideas together in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 15 says this, What accord has Christ with Belial? And Paul is talking about the joining of false teachers together with true teachers. And he said, these people don't have anything in common. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What's the, it's a rhetorical question. Is there any agreement between the temple of God and idols? Say no. Oh, you're a great church. You know the Lord, love his word. Isn't that good? There's no agreement between temple of God and with idols. For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. Now watch this. This is awesome. This is awesome. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Remember what we saw in Revelation 18? Come out of her, my people. Flee this place that is only destined for the wrath of God. And here Paul uses something similar. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says who? The Lord Almighty. Who alone can accomplish your salvation? That's what this passage just said. Salvation and glory and honor to 
belong to our God. Why are you a Christian? Because God has done something that I could not do. I came to the end of myself to please him and my abilities, and I threw myself on the grace of God. And God, in his kindness and in my humility and my faith that throws myself on the goodness and the grace of God, revealed to me in Jesus Christ, has done something through his might that I could not do. I could not make my way to God. I could not step into. Did you see what Paul just said? I could not step into the family of God unless God adopted me. I needed the Lord God Almighty. Now, here's heaven again. Go back to 19. Hear this, here's this voice, this great multitude saying that the Lord God Almighty, he is the one who reigns. Now, that idea of God being joined to his people is all through the Old Testament but it finds its fulfillment in Revelation 19. Look at verse seven, 19 verse seven. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. What have the tribulation saints been doing through the tribulation period? They've been on the run for their lives. They've been persecuted by political powers and religious zealots. They've been commanded to fall down and worship the Antichrist, and they have refused. They've refused to take the mark of the beast, and they've held fast to the testimony of God through Jesus Christ. Those who have lost lost their lives have discovered that on the other side of being persecuted and martyred for their faith, that they're described as the individuals who wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb, and they are washed fine and clean. See, the idea here, as you get to the end of days, to the great joining of the bridegroom and the bride, is that his people have consistently made themselves ready by being faithful to the truth of the gospel message. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, pick up the whole armor of God so that in the day of evil you may do uh, blah, 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 something that's really, really good, and having done all, to stand. You can read it later. I I can't remember what it is right now. His people have held fast to the truth of the gospel message in a wicked day, and they've lost it. They loved their lives unto death. They loved not their lives unto death. They've made themselves ready. They've held to the truth in a wicked day. They've endured hardship because of what they believe about Jesus Christ. It's cost them their money, sometimes their family, definitely their friends. They've lost even their life. They've held to their morality and their purity and their obedience when everything around them is is primed to give man exactly what they want. And they said, no, I will hold to the truth of Jesus and who he is and what he has said. This is one of Jesus' final parables as he gets to the end of his life. And he goes toward the crucifixion. He tells a parable of ten virgins who are waiting for the groom to come. Five are wise, five are foolish, five are prepared, have their lamps trimmed, oil in their lamps, ready to go and go into the feast, and then others are not ready. And here the bride is ready. Verse 8, it was granted to her, granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You know who wears fine linen? Fine linen is, you see the contrast between 17 and 19, don't you? 
that the prostitute is, is wearing purple and scarlet and rich, wealthy-looking clothes that indicate both her corruption, her perversion, and her immorality, and her massive wealth. Fine linen is just as expensive. However, it's not worn by prostitutes. It's worn by royalty and it's worn by priests. The angels that step out of heaven with the seven bowls are clothed in fine linen, which means that they are, what it says here, bright, righteous, and fundamentally pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the great paradox of the Christian life, that how am I righteous because of what Jesus has done? Therefore, what do I do is deeds of righteousness. That the deeds of righteousness I do come out of my right standing with God by grace through faith. And that these individuals in the last day, as they prepare themselves to see Jesus Christ, are doing the deeds that express the righteousness that they have by faith. It's what Paul says in Ephesians. By grace you've been saved through faith, this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. It's the work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For he who works in you, uh, is, uh, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, now we have an imputed righteousness. Because of what Jesus has done, I am counted righteous, even though today I will perhaps maybe sin, maybe even in the next 10 minutes. And my righteousness has been given to me by somebody who has obeyed in a way that I could not. But there's coming a day when I step into heaven and I will be known as God knows me and I will be clothed not just with imputed righteousness, but become actually righteous. that all of the sin and the unbelief and the despair and the discouragement and the uncertainty of life in this world that is walking by faith and not by sight will be over and I will actually become completely and purely and wholly righteous as he is righteous. Isn't that good news? Man, aren't you glad about that? Isn't that gonna be great? No more of this? Yeah, Steve, we know. It's you, Steve. It's your problem. The angel said to me, now, this is, this is just great. I, nine and 10 is the point of our time here together. And I'm gonna show you why. But nine and 10 are, are interesting to me because the worship service is interrupted. There's all of this worship in heaven happening and the angel goes, pause, hey John, write this down. And you've gotta think that John, you know, look at what he says, verse nine. The angel said to me, write this. Now, when an angel tells you to something, tells you, write this down. Do you think it's important? I would get, I mean, just shot in the dark, this is probably important. Now, what have we just seen in six through eight? We've seen the ultimate fulfillment of God joining with his people for all eternity. That while a funeral in Revelation chapter 18 speaks of finality and failure and the loss of everything this world promises to me, a wedding is a different illustration, isn't it? A wedding has different kinds of feelings. While you stand at a grave and you go, this person, all there is left is this. All of their hopes and dreams and fears and money and uh, accomplishments and all of that are immediately or at least quickly forgotten. 
But a wedding is a different kind of emotional experience, isn't it? When you go to a wedding and we all stand and we turn and we look and we wait in anticipation for that final moment when two people who love each other will join their lives together until they die. And that moment of anticipation is what you're meant to carry into this. Because this, for John, is the ultimate fulfillment of God being joined with his people. This is the thing that every Christian longs for, that one day I will see him. That one day my sin will be taken away completely. One day I will experience full and final salvation. And now here's this angel telling John, John, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the fifth of seven blessings in this book. The book began with blessed are those who read the prophecy, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, blessed are those who stay awake with their garments on and are ready for Christ's return. And right here, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's as if the angel pauses this future reality. Because listen, we're reading this in 2021, and would you agree we're not in heaven yet? Right? Okay. We aren't there yet. And here the angel tells John, John, write this down. Because what you just saw needs to be penned. It needs to be put pen to paper so that you would write down something that the church, until this time, the church between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus Christ might have something that so reorients them on this planet that their hearts would be filled with anticipation for the great day of the Lord. That the longing of their heart might be stoked again and reminded of there's coming a day when you will see the one in whom you have put your hope. And the angel says, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. It's there so that you would know. We, we, a lot of times we live our lives in response to the objective truth of what Jesus has done back here. But what John does in the book of Revelation is give you tomorrow's newspaper so that you would live your light in light of the objective reality of Jesus' first coming and that you would live your life in light of the objective reality of Jesus' second coming. You with me? So read Revelation, you know, once a year. Because you need to be reminded of the first and the second advent so that your life would be ordered correctly. You need to remember that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You need to be reminded to make your heart and mind ready in anticipation and in faith for what, not just what Jesus has done, but what Jesus will do. Now, I love verse 10. This is so great because it's so funny to me. Revelation 19, verse 10. John, it says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This truth is so reoriented, this is so baffling to John, so emotionally overwhelming to John that he does something stupid. He's so captivated by this scene of God's people throughout all the ages, finally seeing how God has been faithful to remove sin, redeem his people, keep every one of his sheep safe. He's told by the angel to write this down because this is absolutely true. You can bet on this. And John goes, I can't even take it. You're amazing. I'm going to worship you. 
But he said to me, you must not do that. That's, I mean, that's quite the understatement in the book of Revelation, isn't it? You've got all of this throne room scene and the lamb and all of this, and the angel goes, hey, don't do that. Don't embarrass me here. John, John, we don't need, come on, John. We're going to write this down forever. You don't, this is how you. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. You know, this really hit me. This way. I told Suzanne, I, this truth right here really hit me as a, as a preacher. Because this angel who's absolutely pure, who gives a reorienting word to people who are on earth at this time, recognizes that the glory is not his. He refuses to get in the way between one of God's people and God himself. Isn't that good? He gets out of the way. He says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant just like you who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, let me close with this. Let me, I'm going to ask our, our band to come. The testimony of Jesus is a phrase that has been used in this book before. Okay, it, it characterized the beginning of John's writing. If you remember that, go back with me to Revelation chapter 1. I just want to encourage you with this. This is just so encouraging to me. I think this is important for us. Is this phrase here at the end of Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus as a spirit of prophecy, means that the central idea of the prophetic preaching of the New Testament centers in one singular person. It centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1, him we proclaim. That Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And now here's John making a bad worship move, which tells you a couple things. One, that truth is the thing that ought to orient our worship, not experience. You with me? John just had a remarkable experience with a voice of an angel showing him things about God. And he messed up the worship moment because he didn't worship in truth. And he gets rebuked by an angel. Always a bad deal. When an angel tells you to write, write it down. When an angel rebukes you, pay attention. Revelation chapter one. The testimony of Jesus is important because it's important to John. We have the fulfillment of all of the hopes of all the Old Testament uh, all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints, and the tribulation saints who've been through this period, these last seven years of human history. But it's as if Revelation 19.10 here takes all of that mass of individuals who've put their faith in God, the, those, that um, cloud of witnesses who've put their faith in God in their time and their season in life. And then Revelation gives us a moment to where it's, it almost stops the worship service and it puts your eyes back on John. Do you remember where John is? That John's held faithfully. He's probably the last living apostle. He's held faithfully to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, here's what it says. I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation, the difficulties of this world, and the kingdom, the promises 
of all of what God will do and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Listen, you, if you're a Christian, man, you know that there are times when holding to the testimony of Jesus is hard. You know that there are conversations and relationships and decisions you've made that don't feel good and aren't easy. And Revelation 19.10 reminds us that here's this guy alone in exile, holding to the faith that he has in Jesus Christ. And he's reminded, again, that that's the most important thing about us. It doesn't matter if you, you know, appreciate the angels or you understand all of these visions or all of those things, but what matters is that you continue to hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that our great hope for you as a church is that we might do all that we can to get out of the way and connect you to your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. Because that is going to be the thing that will carry you through the seasons of difficulty and hardship. It will carry you through the times where you have made a step of faith and it's cost you something. And it's as if Revelation 19.10 reminds you, here's John alone holding to the faith that he has. And he's been given the future newspaper and this is how it's going to go. And all he's got is his faith in what Jesus has done in his death and burial and resurrection. And the good news is that it's enough. Father, would you remind us this morning of the full sufficiency of your word. That the true words of God might penetrate our hearts and our minds. That we might be reminded again to stoke the flames of our hearts toward the anticipation of what will be and what will happen and that you will not abandon us and you will not abandon your word. That you will be faithful all the way to the end. That heaven and earth may pass away but your word will not. So may we be wise people that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 who built our houses and our homes and our lives on the rock. And though rains come and winds beat against it, our houses will stand. And on the last day, we will join the everlasting song and say hallelujah. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.